Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Lena Lang, author of Jane Jacobs' First City. Our guest today is Glenna Lang, and she is the author of this book, Jane Jacobs' First City, Learning from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, Glenna Lang, if, if for people who are not familiar with her, who is Jane Jacobs? Well, that's, that's a big question, which is answered in the book as well. But to introduce her to those who are probably not familiar with her, she was a very important author and in 1961 was one of three women who wrote books that changed the world. And uh, one was Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. Uh, the other was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And Jane Jacobs wrote a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And it literally changed the world and the way we view cities. Uh, before her book, there were a lot of very enthusiastic officials, architects, even uh, just regular people who thought cities had become degraded, they were falling apart, uh, they were run down, and they didn't appreciate the communities that lay within, and they turned to a, a process known as urban renewal, which essentially meant bring in the bulldozer and let's get rid of this so-called blight. And they did it not, you know, one single building at a time, but but great swaths of uh, mainly inner city neighborhoods, um, often inhabited by uh, minorities and uh, people of color. And uh, this was going to be the solution to it. And Jane thought about cities carefully. She was kind of a student in a way, a self-appointed student of cities. And she, she was writing from New York at that point. And uh, she went into to great depth to analyze what makes a city work, what's valuable about cities and why uh, they should not be destroyed wholesale as, as they were. It was a time when many people were moving to the suburbs and uh, that was kind of, you know, the 1950s. And, uh, and, and, and Jane thought that was a, a, a very, very bad idea. And her book was extremely controversial when it came out. It, it angered a lot of city officials. I think uh, most notably the story that, that people uh, talk about is her, her theoretical battle with Robert Moses, who was the the um, official in New York City who was in charge of so many agencies. And the, there's a famous book about him uh, called The Power Broker by... Um, <laughs> uh, Robert Cato? That's it. Thank oh. you. Thank you. And uh, so, so 
<clears throat> Jane served a very important purpose. She analyzed the city. She talked about how density was important, how preserving old buildings was important, and uh, walkable cities were important. They are, these are many things that we take for granted today, but they were not qualities of cities that, that people appreciated. Well, there are the a lot of there are a lot of books published every year. So how is it that her book happened happened to get such attention and have so much uh, effect? Well, first of all, the ideas were new. They were based on common sense. Uh, they were based on her observations. And uh, and she she spoke to the to everybody, not not just officials and experts, but it, she wrote compellingly and thoroughly, and she employed a method that that anybody could use, which is observation and then her her own analysis through common sense. Was and, she a person of some importance at the time that she wrote the book, or was she just a just a person in New York? That, that's, a, that's a good question. She had been an aspiring writer. She had done freelance articles for a lot of magazines and um, newspapers, the Herald Tribune in New York. Uh, and she worked at a magazine herself read by the sort of um, architecture and design industry called Architectural Forum. So she, she was not a a household name at that point. She she was a working woman uh, with a family, and she had she was an an editor and uh, and writer for Architectural Forum, which gave her a position, a, a post, so to speak, from from which to to view cities and think about cities. And she was reading articles and even agreed with some of them about why urban renewal was necessary, but but she. She had a lifelong personal history of, of thinking and questioning things and asking very good questions, but she was not, not well known until her book came out. And, and there were you know, battles in the newspaper about, about her ideas. How, how did her book catch on? I mean, from the day it was published, who read it and said, oh, this is really something we need to pay attention to? Well, the, the people who cared about cities read it and said, this is, this is really interesting. This is uh, a whole new way of thinking. And then there were people who were infuriating, infuriated um, about it. So there was a lot of uh, controversy in the, in the press and, and the, the media. And she was someone who always spoke truth to power. So she, she, you know, she was very polite and dignified, um, but she, she expressed her beliefs. Was that a cause for her from then on? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't think she was looking to be an activist, but there were issues. She was living in, in um, Manhattan, in the neighborhood of Greenwich Village, and which was a, a wonderful old neighborhood uh, that had, was had been there for years and it was a very cohesive neighborhood. It was somewhat bohemian, a lot of artists and, and writers. And, um, and one day she was reading the newspaper and this was soon after her book had come out. And she saw that 
the the city wanted to study her neighborhood for potential urban renewal. Actually, they say they, they wanted to study it for blight and uh, see whether, you know, it, it was blighted and therefore no good. And uh, she was shocked because she felt that once they were studying it, their intentions w were to demolish it. And uh, a lot of people who lived there and, and loved the neighborhood. And uh, she, she was a, a charismatic person and she had a lot of friends. Uh, she was active in, you know, in the, the neighborhood. She was visible. She was, she was tall. She was uh, interested in so many things. And uh, she, she found herself heading up a committee sort of by popular demand to, to take on the city. They, they organize themselves. Now, your book is titled Jane Jacobs' First City, Learning from Scranton, Pennsylvania. What caused you to tie the two together? That, that's the perfect question, I thank you for it. Um, I, I see the, uh, the book as a, a dual portrait, and I had previously written a book to inspire young adults, I say ages 10 and up, to, to observe and look at their cities and think about them. And uh, use, I used Jane Jacobs as a lens, lens through which to view the, uh, the city. And uh, so it was a, what I call a partial, the first book, which was called um, Genius of Common Sense, Jane Jacobs and the Death and Life of Great American Cities. So it was really the story of how she wrote the book. And, um, and in, in doing so and understanding her, her early life a little bit, but very um, summarily, I, I uh, learned a bit about Scranton and, and I went to Scranton once to, to visit it. And I, I, I wanted to walk in her footsteps. And I saw her house where she had grown up and the, the high school she went to and the, the downtown. And uh, it was kind of an, an aha experience because I, I was so taken with the city of Scranton. And suddenly I, I understood where her ideas came from. She, she was uh, really largely talking about Scranton even though she used examples from her Greenwich Village neighborhood and, and New York. And many people had dismissed her book because they, they thought it was too much about New York. You know, all her observations were based on it and, and her own neighborhood. And I could see that that was not the case. And I was, I was fascinated by, by Scranton, which had been very much urban renewed but you could see the, the beautiful gems of architecture and, and I, I met enough people to sense the, um, the, the passion and, and loyalty to Scranton. And when I, after my first book came out, I, um, I always wanted to go back to Scranton. And then I finally, I had I had an invitation from the architectural uh, organization, the, the AIA, and um, to to talk that one one man had learned from a review in the Scranton Times Tribune, 
that this young adult book had come out about Jane Jacobs. He, as an architect, he was excited about this and learned that she had grown up a few blocks from his house. She, he invited me to, to come and speak at the dedication of a plaque that he was having installed in front of her childhood home and did a little more research and I was up and running. And I just, I couldn't wait to, to do more research. For people, Scranton, Andrea for, Jacobs. For people who are not familiar with Scranton, first of all, because people are seeing this all across Pennsylvania, where is it? Tell us a little bit, bit about it. Uh, it's in northeast Pennsylvania, up in the corner near New York, and it's on the Lackawanna River, which is a sort of lazy, lazy, slow river. And it's, it's the anthracite capital, certainly, of the U.S., and, and really of the world. So uh, the, the main industry had been mining anthracite coal. And believe it or not, it was the third largest city in Pennsylvania when Jane Jacobs, who was then Jane Butzner, that was her maiden name, when she was growing up. And uh, that's, that's something that most people don't realize. It's, uh, it was a city that kind of peaked in... <laughs> and nosedived. Why was the city located where it is in the first place? Beca because of the uh, coal deposits and resources that were discovered. But to go back to the early history, uh, in, in 1840, it was, it was nothing. <laughs> there were, it was sort of a, a crossroads, and there had been an iron forge there and a gristmill, and, and that was it. But Slocum Hollow. Slocum Hollow. <laughs> it's like Sleepy Hollow. Uh, and, and these three, three men came from, from the east, uh, sort of Connecticut by way of New Jersey. And, and uh, there was this, there was the, the, the two rivers there. Uh, and uh, they, they decided it would be a, a great place for building an iron furnace in manufacturing iron um, because they had discovered some coal. They, there was limestone nearby, and they thought there was a lot of iron ore. So they, they went there, and uh, they were very uh, talented innovators, and they, in just sort of a, an incredibly short amount of time, built these giant iron furnaces, which you can still go and, and visit, and um, established a, quite a successful business, which just um, meteorically turned into a, a large business and, uh, and, and uh, gave birth to the rail, railroads. So industry grew incredibly quickly there. Who was Mr. Scranton? He was a... Well, there, there was a whole family of Scrantons. We still have um, them today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These were the, the, the early ones. Um, there, there were the people who had the technology, and, and they engaged people who knew what they were doing, and, and they were the, the financiers. They had the money and the, uh, some, the business know-how and, uh, and, and, and the incentive. Uh, they thought it was a great possibility, and it, it sort of took off, much to their surprise. In 
means uh, Scranton incorporated as a borough 16 years later and 10 years later in 1866, um, which had begun in 1840, they had a, a big city, which is incredible. A lot of the surrounding cities like uh, Wilkes-Barre had been there longer and they were bigger when they started and, and Scranton overtook these, these other cities. And, and it was because of the enormous amount of anthracite that um, they were discovering. The, the mines they were building. Why did Jane Jacobs' family end up in uh, in Scranton? Uh, because it was such a promising city. And there's a, a whole chapter in the book. It, this was a question that Jane Jacobs pondered all her life. You know, why, why would my parents move here? They had nothing to do with Scranton. Uh, her, her dad was from a farm in uh, rural Virginia. He became a doctor and because a rich uncle had sponsored him to, to go to the University of Virginia. And then he had what consists of a, a residency in Philadelphia. He had gone to Philadelphia, was working in the hospital. Jane's mother was from Bloomsburg, which is more in um, sort of central and, and slightly more Southern Pennsylvania, 60 miles from Scranton. And, and so uh, they were a sort of upper middle class family, which had been in Bloomsburg for a very long time. Her um, father was from a much poorer family. And um, they, they, she would, um, Jane's mother was a nurse in uh, the same hospital as, as Dr. Butzner. And uh, they met and then they, they had very serious and um, intense conversations as to where they would move. And Scranton had a reputation for this, this city of opportunity. You know, everybody was moving there. It was thriving. I think by the time they moved there, the city had close to 130,000 people. And, and that's, um, that's less than 50 years after it was founded. So it, it was it was hot, <laughs> um, and so it was not a crazy thing. But by the time Jane arrived and was growing up, she's seeing a city that's starting to decline. And what were the years that she was growing up there? So she's born in 1916, and that's actually the the 50th anniversary of um, the incorporation of the yeah of the city. Uh, Scranton as a city, and um, and 1917 was the peak. So the year after she was born was the peak of coal production, and it you know it was it was so valuable because it was important to World War One for the the U.S. It it powered their submarines, and uh, I mean some incredible tonnage of of anthracite coal was coming from from Scranton. And um, but technology is starting to change, and uh, the demand for for coal starts going way down um, by the the mid 1920s when Jane is you know in grammar school and then high school and depression hits. Now you say in your book when she was young she liked to wander and explore the city. If 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 you were with her wandering around Scranton as she was growing up and doing her wanderings, what would you have seen? 
That's a wonderful question. And there's a kind of um, imagined walk that she takes. She ends up going to eighth grade downtown and right in the heart of Central City. And uh, so she's living just you know, two blocks from the, the center of the city. She she walks by the the beautiful uh, Masonic Lodge that uh, was built in, in the late 1920s in the Art Deco style. Uh, she goes by City Hall. This is all within a few blocks of the school, the City Hall, which is a, a, a beautiful Victorian stone building, uh, another, fantastic, two beautiful post offices in, in succession, fine department stores, uh, Courthouse Square. Uh, Scranton becomes the, the capital of, uh, of a newly formed county. It had been part of Luzerne County, which uh, where Wilkes-Barre was the capital. People in Scranton got tired of going 20 miles to get a, a deed from the registry or something. And, um, and so they, they created their own county and called it Lackawanna County. And to celebrate, they built a county courthouse and, and also for functional reasons. Um, and uh, so, so there's a beautiful courthouse square right in the heart of downtown, surrounded by uh, green space and uh, very eclectic kind of 1880s architecture. Um, and meanwhile, there, there are little stores, you know, uh, one and two story stores of all kinds from, oh my goodness, you know, clothing stores to bakeries. Um, there, there are two great department stores within three blocks of her school. And, and she was the kind of person who just liked to, to go um, to places like the, the beautiful 1906 train station in the Beaux-Arts style with grand waiting room. And, and she and her friends would, you know, go into the, the station. So you have um, just a variety of stores and people shopping and uh, businesses uh, thriving. It, it's really lively. And then a few blocks away, there are theaters. How close, rich. <laughs> how close to the city and to where she lived would you have found the mines? Another great question. The mines were not in Central City, but not far. And I'm talking about half a mile, um, not far from, from the center of the city. Uh, there were mines. And uh, my, these mines had coal, coal breakers where the, the coal went up into the air and, and went down kind of a slide and was sorted by famous breaker boys, but it generated a lot of waste, a lot of um, sort of rock mixed with coal waste. And they, this was dumped into piles, which became mountains, and they were called culm, C-U-L-M, dumps. And they, they were uh, gigantic and visible along with the coal breakers. So on her way to high school, and uh, she would literally have walked by one of these giant mines and um, and and breakers and a giant coal dump, and and these were scattered right on the the edge of town. You know, the the town grew up around them. I mean, there was not one literally at the crossroads of downtown, 
but you could not miss them. And, and you could see them in the distance if there was a big calm dump. Was her family well-to-do? I'd say they were, they were middle class, you know, maybe slightly upper middle class. Her father certainly hadn't been. Um, he had a you know reasonable business as a doctor. He was a physician, a, a general internist, and her mother was a homemaker. But um, but Jane went to school with with children of minors as well. I mean, people lived cheek by jowl. The um, the physical landscape of Scranton is that it's in a, a fairly the central city is fairly flat. There are sort of hills around it. it it's like the bottom of a big bowl. So uh, you can't really live up on the sides of the bowl. You end up living at the, you know, the, the bottom. So people were very close together. And, and because they needed labor for the mines, Scranton attracted a lot of immigrants. Um, so, and they were also it attracted entrepreneurs as, as well. But, what would the um, ethnic mix have been? To begin with, so the, there are um, sort of, I don't know, Irish, Scottish Protestants who founded the, the um, city, like the Scrantons. And, um, but then as they called for workers, they got a lot of um, Welsh because there were Welsh coal mines um, in South Wales. And they had the skills to mine, to mine uh, anthracite, and um, there the Irish came looking for work um, post potato famine, and um, there were also Germans, a lot of whom uh, became businessmen. So we have the the Welsh, Irish, and Germans to begin with. When Jane is growing up, there there um, had recently been and continued to be a lot of Eastern Europeans. Um, Russians, Polish, Lithuanians, and Italians, but you know all sorts of little countries too. An incredible mix of ethnic groups. You write in here that Jane recalled her mother warning her that some of the children at the Washington School were not nice, and Jane understood what she meant. She was referring to the Italian, Eastern European, and Irish kids, many of whom lived in the patch. Did she have friends among the various ethnic groups? A absolutely. Absolutely, and um, one one of her her very best friends, whom I got to interview when the her friend was ninety five, and um, Jane was no longer with us. But her her friend Marie Van Bergen was of um, Dutch origin. She was she was from a downwardly mobile family, and um, and. I don't think her mother thought she was high class. Her, her mother was a real church-going, um, upstanding woman, uh, and she she was in Girl Scouts with uh, Italians, whom I talked to. There are Irish people on the street within her own block. I think there were, you know, ten ten different nationalities originally, and some of them were were first-generation immigrants. And they, they went to schools together. The schools were very local. But even if they're very local, your neighborhood is, is not uh, from one culture by any means. And there was an African-American population in, in uh, Scranton at the time? Which was, which was a wonderful discovery and something that you know, nobody had ever mentioned. Um, 
Yes, and the, the African-American um, population had been there for a long time, since the, the 1870s. They, um, they lived between the two high schools, which were the only high schools in the, the city, only a few blocks away. Uh, they're, they're right in Central City. Um, there were two, two high schools that um, people came from all over, and, and African-Americans attended them. Uh, they, they were always integrated into the the city and the schools, and you know, no no restrictions. Um, I know that Jane worked uh, with African Americans when she was editor of the Poetry Magazine in in high school. Uh, you know, she's clearly friends with all all sorts of people, and you know, in a, a place that small, you naturally came into contact with you know people not only other um from other countries but people from other other races and and her her father w was not um at all prejudiced i think her mother had come from a a small town and you know jane thought she was more old-fashioned but jane's approach was to educate her mother and and bring home friends from from other cultures and you know other classes, so to speak. You mentioned Girl Scouts, and you devote a whole chapter to Jane in the Girl Scouts. What was so significant about it that it deserved a whole chapter? I, because it was a, a huge influence on Jane's life. And, uh, and that was something that she had never really divulged uh, publicly. But um, Jane w was not a a um, assiduous student. She she didn't like school. She she wanted to read. She wanted she was really smart. Everybody knew that. But she didn't want to be tied down doing stuff that she wasn't interested in or she felt was taught in a boring way. And I think one of her ways around that was uh, her discovery of the Girl Scouts and how how freeing that was. How how liberating. It was to be in an uh, organization where you could learn by doing. It, it also brought her, by the age of 10, into contact with um, other, other girls in, around the city. Uh, they, they had badges, I guess they still do today, that they could work towards it. So you could study all sorts of um, interesting things. But, but one of their, their main things, one of the main activities and values that the Girl Scouts taught was was observation, that that you should be a a naturalist and uh, learn to observe nature by looking and, and writing about it. They kept journals and um, and also they thought that you should observe you could apply the same observation skills to examining your city. And, uh, and and she did that. And uh, I, I think it was it was wonderful that she could learn by doing um, in a, a what she felt was a, a democratic self-governing organization. And it, and Girl Scouts also made a, a real attempt to be inclusive. And I should say they succeeded. You know, they they actively recruited girls from. Um, poorer families, from from 
uh, you know, at, at that stage, there's much more of a split between Catholics and and Protestants, and they they made sure to recruit um, Catholics as well. And I, I failed to mention that that this good friend of of um, Jane's that I interviewed so much, Marie Van Bergen, was um, Catholic as well. So that that was kind of a minority, so to speak, or you know, a, a different kind of. Uh, person. You write in your book that uh, when she was in school, a guest speaker at an assembly lectured the school's children on the proper care of their teeth. When the speaker asked everyone to raise their hand if they promised to brush their teeth morning and noon for the rest of their lives, morning and night for the rest of their lives, Jane considered her father's words and refused to make an unrealistic promise. Feeling convinced about this principle, she urged her schoolmates to join her in not making the promise they would surely break. Back in the classroom, the mortified and infuriated teacher felt Jane had crossed the line. Miss Corcoran could not tolerate such insubordination and promptly expelled her from the classroom. So she had strong opinions. That was Jane. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love that story because it um, really demonstrates her personality. I mean, she was not. She was not impolite. It, it demonstrates so many things. It demonstrates. Um, that she was a free thinker. If, if a teacher said something, she wasn't just going to accept it. She was going to think about it. And her, um, her father was a, a very thoughtful person, obviously very intelligent as well. And he, he, he was close to Jane and to all her children, uh, his children. Um, but she had these kind of conversations where they're talking about morals. And she... She hears his teacher say what she thinks is a ridiculous thing. You know, how can you possibly promise something that you know you're not going to keep the promise for? And but then she is um, she has a strong personality and and she's very confident. She is she's fearless in in many ways and she just I think spontaneously responds <laughs> to the teacher and and uh, and you see her there in um, third grade organizing her class you know <laughs> raise your hand if, if you disagree and um and and she went home and told her mother that that the, the teacher had thrown her out and her mother was very nice about it and, and wow. you know did not reprimand her now um, so encouraged. When, when she was pretty young her family moved from scranton to dunmore which is sort of next door was mm -hmm. Dunmore any different than Scranton? It's um, governmentally different because it's um, not part of Scranton. But as far as um, being contiguous, it, it feels like a, a natural flow when you're walking from one to the other. It, it's, it doesn't have as big a downtown. It has a little sort of crossroads. Um, and... Uh, I mean, the diversity is still there in, in Dunmore. And you say in the uh, book that she dedicated two of the her books to the house she lived in in, in Dunmore. That's right. Uh, she 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 loved where she lived. Clearly, she loved her house. She loved her family. I don't think she considered herself to be a Dunmorian. I mean, her family physically lived in Dunmore. Uh, but it was really a part of, of Scranton. 
and um, she she clearly loved the city and uh, and and loved her house, which was a it, it was a house that stood out on her block because it it was brick, and it was at the slight apex of the the hill, um, and it was a little bigger, but they had a big family at that point. And the house um, is still there. It is very much so, with a plaque in front <laughs> saying it was the the childhood home of, of Jane Jacobs. How many times did you visit Scranton working on this book? You know, I lost count, um, but I, I spent at least 10 years researching this. I, I felt like a, um, a detective or an archeologist because Scranton had gone so downhill. It had, um, you know, by the time I was working on this, it had, um, there were a lot of records that had been destroyed. It was hard to find information about it. I was literally looking in closets in schools for for records, and um, I, I I went back I don't know, at least a, a couple times a year, and and I was talking. Meanwhile, I I live in the Boston area. Meanwhile, I was interviewing people um, by phone, and. Um, you know, it's wonderful. You can read all newspapers online. And, um, and then I, I had some very kind people who lived in Scranton who become friends during this process who would look up things and, you know, the library there. So even though I wasn't in Scranton all the time, I was really connected to Scranton. And um, I can tell you, it's hard to give up that connection. It, it still continues. The research in some ways still goes on. Where do you find stories like the one about her and the, the brushing of the teeth? Uh, she actually told that story in an interview, I believe. I, there's so many things. I think that's correct. But I, I heard a, a lot of stories through family members of, of James. And um, her, her son was very, very, very helpful. And he, he clearly was an assistant to his mother in her writing, or certainly a discussant all the time. Um, and there was one, one living sibling when I started this project, who was her, let's see, yeah, her, her youngest brother was still alive. And, and then his, his wife outlived him, um, Kay Butzner. And she was a wonderful source. She had, she had grown up in Scranton. And so she was another terrific person who told me lots of stories. And, and then she had a, a daughter named, named Jane after um, her aunt. And, uh, and, and Jane and I went to uh, Scranton. And, and it was great because her, her presence sort of opened doors for us and that's she was there when we, we first got to talk to um, African-Americans. Uh, so we, it was great to have a partner. And, and she, she loved her aunt, her, her eccentric aunt, Jane, and um, had, had lots of stories as well. So I was really lucky. Well, to, Jane's, years, Jane's years in Scranton were uh, coincided with the Depression. How, how did her family feel that and how did Scranton feel that? Um, well, Jane, Jane left for New York in 1934, so she had experienced the beginning 
of the depression. Um, her father had a much harder time finding work. Uh, there were there were coal strikes leaving, leading up to that that affected everybody. Uh, I learned a lot from Marie Van Bergen about that. Um, Jane talked about rolling up newspapers to make newspaper logs to burn for heat. There were a lot of a lot of people out of work. Um, it was it was tough times, but one one important point about Scranton was its wonderful sense of community, both um, local communities, neighborhoods, and the city as well. And um, there there was a, a civic unity and a pulling together. I mean, people really came together to help one another during hard times. And uh, the community chest was really important at that point. You know, churches really reached out, churches and synagogues reached out to help people um, who were less fortunate. When and, did... Um, when yeah. did Jane's abilities as a writer start to show themselves? Uh, uh, she had her first piece published in a, a Presbyterian church magazine <laughs> when she was 10. And her mother actually collected her, her childhood poems and uh, typed up a book and made copies and submitted it to the Library of Congress <laughs> where you can... You can see it. So she she was an aspiring poet, and that was another thing about Girl Scouts, was they really encouraged literacy. They they encouraged reading. They had a great magazine, I think, which has evolved since then, which published things by by uh, Girl Scouts and non Girl Scouts as well. Uh, and Jane always always wanted to to be a writer, first a, first a poet, um, and then, you know, prose as well. But she never went to college. So in, instead of college, she, she um, much to her parents' disappointment, she did not want to go to college. She didn't like school and organized learning like that. And she, uh, they said, well, hey, you better get some skills so you can earn a living, you know, they. They were in no position or desire to support her. So first she, she went to secretarial school and learned um, typing. Really, She was a really fast typist and stenography. And she got herself a, a one-year secretarial degree. And, um, and then uh, she, she, had, she had won a couple of poetry contests and had been recognized for her writing skills. Um, and, and then she she wanted to get in what would be the equivalent of an internship today at the morning newspaper in Scranton. You said she always and loved newspapers. She the whole family did. They 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 sat at breakfast and they talked about the stories and and her father had favorite columnists and he say, oh, okay, let's see what so-and-so is saying today. So they love newspapers. I mean, newspapers were a very, very important part of the culture at that point. I mean, she's uh, in the 1920s just living in an era where, where radio is really breaking through. You know, there's certainly no television. Um, she loves newspapers and uh, it, it combines her desires to observe 
and also write about things. But as a as a young woman, <laughs> she's at first uh, relegated to being a, a reporter on the women's page. Were there many women reporters at the time? Very, very few. Um, she's working for the the morning paper, the, the Scranton Republican, and there's a, an evening paper, the Scranton Times. On the Scranton Times, um, the the daughter of the, the publisher becomes a, an important poet, a reporter, and um, and she's she's well known becomes well known in Scranton in the early thirties, but um, I think that there's one other person who kind of rises in the ranks, but it's very unusual, and uh, the 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 women reporters are are often only on the um, the social beat, you know they're not given given news stories. Was she allowed and, to report on hard news at some point? Eventually, I mean, not eventually. She was only there for nine months, but um, after two or two months or so, she's allowed to do, um, or she's asked to do book reviews and reviews of plays. And uh, she really turns the heads of the, the male reporters. Uh, wow, who's this person writing? And then she's allowed to do uh, stories, news stories as well. And she's, her, I, I, um, some of a few of her stories are byline, so we know that she wrote them. But um, others you can tell from the writing. And I, I, um, fortunately, her her son had a scrapbook that the newspaper had, I believe. No, I think she had compiled this. Um, she had compiled some of her articles, so I learned which ones were hers. But hers, hers were always distinctive. They were, they were more colorful. They were really thoughtful. I mean, the reporting was good in those days. But, but Jane had a, had a flair for using the the right word, of turning a phrase, um, and yeah. She left Scranton at a fairly young age, to go to New York City. She always wanted to go to New York. <laughs> it was it was the big city. She loved Scranton. I think she felt it it got small. It was a little claustrophobic. She was ambitious. She wanted to be a successful writer, and she thought that New York had more opportunities. She had been there at, at least once as a child when she was twelve, and she was just very knocked out by the city. It, the scale of New York compared to Scranton is is quite a contrast. So that, that was her ambition. But, but she had told an editor of an anthology, uh, anthologist who had uh, chosen her poem to be in uh, a very special collection, published collection. She had told this this editor that her ambition was first to be a reporter, but her intention was then to to go to New York. And uh, you say when and, when she was living in New York, she had a couple of articles in the the Herald Tribune, the big newspaper there, and and wrote about Scranton quite a bit. Uh, that was during a crisis. That was by the the early nineteen forties. So she she arrived in in nineteen thirty four when she's just 18 and she freelances. She, one of the things she does is um, 
she she goes to various districts. You know, New York has various business districts, the fashion industry, and all that. And she would she would walk around and write a a piece on that neighborhood. Really fascinating and and obscure topics. She wrote one on um, on manhole covers, which was really fun, and and what you could learn from them. And so and then she would submit them to various places. So those were her her early her early articles and, um, and and one of the places she um, submitted freelance articles to was the the Herald Tribune and um, but in the 1940s and after the depression and um, were in World War II she learns from her friends actually from the the reporting friends the other fellow reporters that that Scranton's in a terrible um, plight because there are some extraordinary numbers of abandoned houses and abandoned um, factories and uh, and and she thinks these buildings would be terrific to to attract wartime industry so she along with the newspaper joined this campaign and and um, this is getting to be a long story but but she goes back to the Tribune and, and writes something, some articles about Scranton's plight and, you know, this um, effort to bring wartime industry to Scranton, and, and they get published. Did she go back to visit Scranton regularly after she moved to New York? She, she did, because her mother was there till 1946. Her father had passed away, which was a huge blow. Um, but I'd say there was a kind of a hiatus after her mother left. She kept in touch because her sister-in-law, Kay Butzner, was, you know, her mother still lived there. Kay's mother still lived there. And, um, and, and she gets news of Scranton. Um, I think that's her, her main connection is through uh, Kay Butzner. And, um, and, and, and then... I, I, you know, her career takes off in New York uh, in the late 60s. She, she moves to Toronto uh, in protest of the Vietnam War. She, she had um, two sons and she, she didn't want them to be drafted. Uh, so, you know, she gets involved in Toronto and in, in sort of urban renewal battles there as well. But I, I think, you know, as you get older, you start thinking about your whole life. And, and she went to her 50th high school anniversary reunion um, in 1983. And I, I think that kind of stimulated her interest in Scranton again and her wondering about why Scranton worked so well in, in many ways and, and the advantages that Scranton had with its you know, more, more, or I should say less unwieldy um, aspect of, of government, of um, economy in some ways, you know, the, the com sense of community and civic unity that Scranton engendered. Now her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities came out in 1961, so that's over 60 years ago. Is there still a point in reading it today? Absolutely, and it won't be as shocking because people uh, have, 
have absorbed her her ideas. You know, we we talk about eyes on the street. That's something Jane uh, Jane coined. It, it's the importance of of having people looking out their windows and you know being aware of what's going on and who's 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 there and um, and uh, you know mixed uses was was her term that maybe didn't she didn't originate but she certainly popularized and um, a lot of things that that people uh, work for today are things that that Jane brought to light so it, it reinforces things that that people know and and she she writes in such detail you know she talks about what she calls border vacuums that the when two um, neighborhoods or, or cities are contiguous where they uh, come together there's very little of you know beauty or interest um, so there's I think there's so much to still be learned and people people invoke her and and she's important to them and I, I think also her outspokenness her her personality that the beauty of her writing um, I think is is important as well. If Jane Jacobs visited Scranton today, what would she think of it? I think she'd be excited because uh, Scranton really hit rock bottom. Its uh, population uh, was, I think in the, I don't know if I have the era exactly right, but in the 1950s was half of what it was at its peak. So it had lost half of its population. And actually, for the first time, I believe in the last couple of years, um, Swinton was was um, gaining uh, a lot of a lot of residents again, new immigrants. Jane Jane loved um, the idea of, of replenishing. Um, I don't know. They, she he, she re realized the value of of immigrants and new people, along with um keeping people in the city who had allegiance to it and and this is her argument about how to deal with gentrification which is always um, an an issue but what has yeah. scranton done right and done wrong from rock bottom to today i i think uh jane would say and i agree that scranton became too focused on its mining, too dependent on a, a single economy, especially of a, a renewable resource. So some of the mines were were getting mined out, along with you know the shift to to um, oil and other fuels. So that that was something that was very unfortunate, and um, she was well aware of. But I think what they've done right is they. <laughs> They stopped tearing down their buildings, and it's partly Jane's um, intervention, or in a way, I mean, she she really um, she tried to do something about their exploding of of their um, epicenter in the 1990s for you know for a mall right at the crossroads of the city. Um, so she got involved in that. I think there, there were people who wanted to preserve. The architecture, um, but also it's it's um, it's attracting new immigrants who are looking for opportunity and to buy 
houses who are not well-to-do and, you know, they join churches, they establish churches and other organizations. Um, they're an asset with their small businesses, lots of new new small businesses that, that had um, uh, blossomed. The pandemic is hurting everybody, but hopefully we'll bounce back. Um, so I, I think this influx of, of people, the uh, continuity of old timers, the um, I, I think people in Scranton are beginning to discover their history, and that was one purpose of the the book to appreciate what the the city has um, had once been and could be again. And uh, I I think she would be happy to see that it's helping people to recognize that medium-sized cities are a, a valuable uh, and viable place to, to live where you don't have you know, the giant amorphous, um, in many ways, unmanageable, giant, I said that already, giant cities like um, you know, New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta, and, uh, so, and medium-sized cities hold a promise for the future, and, well, and yeah. That's gonna to have to be the last word. We're out of time. We've been speaking okay. with Glenna Lang. She is the author of this book, Jane Jacobs' First City, Learning from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me and for your, your wonderful questions. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.